Thank you for that. Good morning. Invited to turn your Bibles to John chapter 4. I'm going to make a note that for the next couple of weeks, I'm not going to be shaking hands. Um, you know, coronavirus, we haven't had any cases here in Sister Park, but it's something that I do think we should have a certain uh, respect for. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of times we need balance. You know, it gets sensationalized as if it's the, the plague when it's not. But I think sometimes we go to the other extreme and act like it's nothing, which it's also not. Um, you know, it's 10 to 20 times more lethal than the flu. And um, I'm really not worried so much about myself because it seems like it's not having the impact on younger people. But um, I don't want to be the uh, patient zero who just spreads it to, to all of you. So uh, we can do like an elbow bump or something. But hope you're all doing well on this beautiful Sunday morning. thought I'd throw that in there. Uh, it's okay, though. They're going to make the tournament, so they got that going for them. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for this day. You are a good God, and, and we just praise you and give you all the glory. Lord, I do want to pray for our nation, for the world, Lord, that is uh, dealing with this coronavirus. It's infected thousands of people, and it's People have died from it. So, Lord, I, I just I pray for our society. Lord, it, it has already been a disruption. Lord, no matter what's going on in the world, in politics, with natural disasters, as we hear about this horrible tornado in Nashville this week, Lord, you are sovereign over all these things. And so we just want to trust you, Lord, in, in everything that is happening in our world. I pray for our time this morning as we study in your word. And every time we open your word, Lord, I pray that it can point us more and more to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. 
The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, and he. (coughs) The second industrial revolution lasted from shortly after the Civil War through the beginning of World War I, and perhaps no other era transformed America quite like those 45 years. It led to the rapid growth of cities. Products that had once been homemade could now be mass-produced. As these products became cheaper, the standard of living increased and helped to foster a growing middle class. Railroads sprawled across America, which made shipping and travel easier. It was the era that made sewers, water lines, and natural gas more commonplace. The telephone was first introduced in America. Plastic was invented, as was the incandescent light bulb. Henry Ford rolled out his assembly line, which cut the production time of a car from 12 hours to 30 minutes. The Wright brothers took to the skies. I give those examples to paint a picture of something that totally transformed every aspect of American life. Jesus brings his own revolution. When he came into the world, he brought the divine plan to a fullness that had previously been unknown. The eternal God became flesh and dwelt among us. And Jesus, too, brought a revolution which was meant to impact every aspect of our lives In our passage today, we will see three important aspects of life in the history of God's people, which are totally transformed and revolutionized through Jesus. First point to be made today is that Jesus brings the greater revelation from God. And we really see that from the beginning of Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well. And as we learn in this passage, it's not just any well, but verse 6 tells us that they're at Jacob's well. Jacob's well on the land which belonged to Jacob, who was the father of the twelve tribes of Israel. And it is at this well that Jesus tells the woman of the living water 
He can provide. Now, the living water of which Jesus speaks is the divine renewal and cleansing which God brings for those who have faith in Jesus through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus speaks of living water, the woman is incredulous. In verse 12, the woman says to Jesus, Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. When she asks Jesus, Are you greater than our father Jacob? It's a rhetorical question. Obviously, she thinks the answer is no. But the irony is that Jesus is better. And not only is Jesus better, but the water he provides is better. When we were studying this Gospel of John last fall, one of the points I kept making was this theme of newness, new life, new creation that Jesus brings. Jesus so totally overshadows everything that had come before him. In chapter 2, we looked at Jesus' first miracle when he turned water into wine at a wedding feast. The point of that miracle was not simply about turning water into wine to do something really cool. Not really just simply showing what Jesus could do, but it points beyond itself. When we studied that passage, I brought up that the water jars which Jesus used to perform the miracle were jars that the Jewish people had used for ritual purification. But in Jesus using the water from those jars to work this miracle, he's showing himself as something greater. He is the better provider who gives the greater sustenance. His provision is greater than the Old Testament. That's what the water points to. In the following passage, the second half of John chapter 2, Jesus is at the temple, the place which was the center of Jewish religious life and worship. And the temple had been corrupted by commerce and vain practices. And so Jesus drives out the merchants and the money changers from the temple. It catches people's attention. In John 2.18, Jesus is questioned. They say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus responds by saying, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The people miss the point of what Jesus is saying. That the actual focus is not on a building, but that Jesus is referring to himself in his resurrection. The temple was the place where God met with his people. And in Jesus, we see God entering the world. Jesus is the true temple, the greater temple, the temple which cannot be corrupted. Again, we see the concept of newness in the very next sequence of events in this gospel when Jesus encounters Nicodemus in chapter 3. And Nicodemus is questioning Jesus. He's trying to understand Jesus and his ministry. Jesus says in John 3, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. A new life is necessary. A greater life. Because it's life in God. And he makes new life available through the rebirth as a result of faith poured out by the Holy Spirit. And we could go on and on and on. We continue to see this idea of newness and Jesus overshadowing what was before him. And we see it again in this passage this morning. Everything that Jesus brings is new and transformative. 
So I take us back to the well. The woman is mystified that Jesus could possibly be so outrageous as to suggest that he's better than Jacob. Jacob, the great patriarch of Israel, Jacob dug this well. And so you have Jacob's well and the water that it provides. And you have Jesus who provides living water from which a person will never thirst. The well is a metaphor for the old covenant. The well is good, but Jesus is better. You had to keep coming back to the well. And the old covenant, the law, was something where you had to continue to try to live up to God, to follow the law. Jesus gives grace once and for all. The well was good as the law was good, but neither could get eternal life. Jesus gives the living water, which becomes a wellspring of eternal life. He provides something greater than Jacob ever could, because Jesus is greater than Jacob ever was. The gospel is greater than the law. Jesus is greater than the Old Testament. People tried to live up to God. People still try to live up to God. People still try to be good enough. But Jesus provides the true forgiveness. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And Jesus provides something greater than Jacob. The water of grace. The water of life. The water of renewal. The water of regeneration. The water of the Holy Spirit is better than the water Jacob provided. The woman, she asks Jesus how she can acquire this living water. She doesn't fully understand what Jesus is saying. In the story, she's still just focused on water. And so Jesus tells her to go get her husband. And when she admits she's unmarried, Jesus shows knowledge into her life, someone she's never met, and in understanding who she is, it is that which catches her attention. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. With that, we come to our second point this morning. And so, so far we've talked about how Jesus brings the greater water. He brings the greater revelation of God. He points forward to a new covenant, which he makes available. Next thing is that Jesus gives the greater access to God. He transforms how we approach God. Verse 20, the Samaritan woman is still talking. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. A couple weeks ago, we talked about worship. And as we looked at the first four commandments, we talked of how those commands point to the object of our worship, the manner of our worship, the attitude of our worship, and the time of our worship. And with what this woman is saying, in this verse, she's getting at the place of our worship. When she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, specifically she's referring to Mount Gerizim. Point I briefly touched on last week. This woman, as the text tells us, was a Samaritan. 
The Samaritans were an ethnic group who were half Jewish. What's more, they believed only in the first five books of the Old Testament. And there was a lot of hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Samaritans did not believe that Jerusalem was the epicenter of religious life or the rightful site of the temple. Instead, they believed then and today that Mount Gerizim was the central locale for meeting with God. In fact, of the roughly 800 Samaritans who are alive today, about half of them live on Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim overlooked the city where Abraham first built an altar to the Lord in Genesis 12. There were also various Old Testament commands for celebrations on this mountain once the Israelites entered the land. So for the Samaritans, that was the place where worship occurred. And again, it was and is the place where Samaritans celebrate the Jewish festivals, Passover, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles. And so I return again to Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. She points to the difference between the Jews and the Samaritans as to the proper place of worship. Jerusalem versus Mount Gerizim. Verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Jesus says, believe me. The Samaritan woman has the Lord of creation telling her to believe him. It's not simply me telling a friend to believe something I'm saying. It's not simply you telling someone you know or your spouse or your kid or your grandkid to believe you. It's God on earth speaking with authority. He says, the hour is coming. We've noted this before, but when Jesus talks about the hour, he's referring to the time of his death. And when Jesus, what Jesus is saying is that after his death and resurrection, neither of those sites will be the epicenter of approaching God. That Jesus himself provides the greater access. That it's not ultimately going to be about either of those places where we meet God. Because it is through Jesus that we come to God. He is the true temple. Approaching God not on a mountain or in a city or in a building, but through a person. We approach a personal God through a personal Savior. The irony of the stories that she's talking about, Mount, Ger- Mount Gerizim versus Jerusalem, and which is the greater of the two places to be with God. But the irony is that she's never been closer to God than at this moment when she's talking to the Lord Jesus himself. But that is true for all of humanity, that Jesus is the meeting place with God. Not only is he the meeting place for how we approach God, But he is the greater meeting place. He is the greater temple because he's not confined to a location. Maybe you're struggling in this new year. 
Maybe you're struggling with an area of sin. Maybe you're struggling with life circumstances or you're feeling stagnant in your relationship towards God. You can always go to the Lord. The temple was a place that was restricted. The inner sanctuary of the temple could only be entered into by the high priest. And that was only once a year. And after a complicated series of cleansing and rituals and sacrifices. But with Jesus, we can come to God. All the rituals and cleansing the high priest had to do pointed to the holiness of God. But through Jesus, we have access to God. Hebrews chapter 4 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast at our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The temple could be corrupted by worldliness, but Jesus is incorruptible. It has overcome the world. So if you're in a place where you're slacking, where you're stagnant, where you don't feel like you're really growing, where you don't feel like you're taking joy in the Lord, the good news is that Jesus is the greater temple, the greater priest who enables us to come to God and to know God. You can go to Jesus. If you've been in a spiritually dry season, you can go to Jesus. And if you never have before... You can come to the Lord because he is gracious and good. Brief aside. Since Jesus is where we go to worship God, is that saying that church doesn't matter? Because we can worship Jesus wherever we are? We should praise the Lord and worship him every day, every hour. However, that does not undermine the church as the priesthood of believers who have been given God's spirit to be the hands and feet of Christ in the world, to serve the mission of God and fulfilling the Great Commission, bearing one another's burdens, partaking in the sacraments, and preaching the word. The Bible says that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So no, that does not undermine the church. And that's our second point. Jesus brings greater access to God. Third point, Jesus points us to greater worship of God. Jesus continues speaking in verse 22. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Jesus says that she worships what she does not know. And he's referring not just to her, but in general to the Samaritans. When Jesus says, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews, he's saying that the promises of God, the covenants God made, the promised land, the scriptures of the Old Testament, the royal line which brought Jesus, 
All of that came from the Jewish people. The Samaritans had an incorrect understanding. But what Jesus is also saying as we move into verse 23 is that a paradigm shift is coming. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Jesus again refers to the hour. Not only is that hour coming, Jesus says that hour is now here. The hour is coming and will be actualized at his death and resurrection. Yet the hour is already present in the world at the time as Jesus ministers in the world. The time has come when true worshipers, when people who are really worshiping the Father, will worship him in spirit and truth. What that means is that worship from people who have the Spirit, in other words, people who have been born again, been regenerated, who have the living water that Jesus provides, and the truth that he's referring to is the truth, Jesus. Jesus came into the world, and he did not merely believe true things or make true statements, but that Jesus himself is the truth. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And it's a matter of believing in the truth of who Jesus is and of his gospel. And worship of the Father is meant to be in spirit and truth. Not spirit or truth, but spirit and truth. Jesus brings the greater worship. Jesus brings a spiritual revolution. And it is through Jesus in Jesus alone, that God is truly worshipped. Verse 24, Jesus says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. We see that phrase again. God is spirit. Not God is a spirit, but God is spirit. God in existence is not merely about the material world, because God is spirit. And because he is spirit, he cannot merely be known intellectually or cognitively. He is spirit. When Jesus told Nicodemus that he must be born again, the reason why he must be born again is because we're dead in sin. That we need new spiritual life. The wages of sin are death. And a dead person can't worship a living God. We cannot worship God in spirit and truth if we have not first been born again. Because if we have not been born again, we do not have the spirit. It must be worshipped based around the gospel from people who believe in the gospel. God must be worshipped this way. It's the only worship that God will accept, spirit and truth. Jesus came to bring the greater revelation, the greater access to God, and the greater worship of God. You cannot truly worship God without Christ. That's what this verse is saying. A person who is not a Christian 
is not capable of true worship of the Lord God. Because if you don't have the gospel, then you cannot worship in spirit and truth. There are no participation trophies. In the Gospel of Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Just being here is not what causes you to be born again. And it is not what enables you to worship in spirit and truth. It's faith. Faith in the gospel. Faith in Jesus. Hebrews 11.6 says that it is impossible to please God without faith. Participation alone is not good enough for the Lord. Singing songs by itself does not constitute worship in spirit and truth. I could sing, O Canada, and that doesn't suddenly make me a citizen of Canada. Just as much as singing Amazing Grace does not inherently make you a citizen of heaven. You have to have faith. Someone who is unregenerate is incapable of worshiping the Lord as the Lord has ordained to be worshipped. Surely that flies in the face of the argument that many roads lead to God. One road leads to God. One road leads to salvation. One road leads to true worship. We don't decide the worship which is acceptable to the Lord. He does. Jesus is the one who gives grace and forgiveness. Not the old covenant, not another religion, and not our own goodness. Jesus is the place where we go to meet with God, and he is the way to worship God. For the Samaritan woman, She has been told the most amazing news that has ever existed in the world. It's overwhelming. It's difficult to understand and comprehend. And she still doesn't fully understand. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. She points forward to a coming Messiah who will... Explain all of the things about which Jesus is speaking. And once again we see irony. Because she's talking about the Messiah. While she's talking to Jesus. The Messiah. Verse 26 says. Jesus said to her. I who speak to you. Am he. Fun fact. This is the only place in the gospels. Where Jesus acknowledges his Messiahship before he's on trial. Jesus is the Lord's Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. And it's because of who he is that he can speak with authority. Time and again, this gospel makes absolute claims about Jesus. Where there's no gray area. 
Time and again, this gospel makes statements where it forces you to pick a side. Jesus is the way to worship, or he is not. He is the way to God, or he is not. He is the Christ, or he is not. What do you believe about Jesus? If you don't believe that, then we have work to do. But if you do believe that, then the response is to come and worship the Savior of the world who brings us into the presence of the Lord, who forgives us of our sins and allows us to worship today and forever in spirit and truth. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we are enabled to worship you because you are worthy of worship, Lord. All the goals that we have, all the things that we look to to make us happy, Lord, you are the treasure above all else. Lord, may we know that today. In Jesus' name, amen.